You are listening to Around Comics, episode 166. Comics, the Comic Culture Podcast. I'm Christopher Neesman, and I'll be your guide for the next hour plus of comic book news, information, and entertainment. And before we get started here, it, it occurred to me a couple days ago that uh, a lot of listeners may not be aware of the show notes that we do for each episode, both Monday and, and Thursday episodes. And they can be a pretty good resource while you're listening to an episode, especially with the Monday episodes because everything is broken down into segments. In our show notes, we do a timestamp, and it lets you know when each segment is going to begin. And it's, it's kind of nice if you want to skip over a segment that you, you know, maybe don't have a lot of interest in, or if you want to go back and listen to a segment you know, repeated times, it'll let you know exactly when those segments start. We also try and put any pertinent URLs in the in the show notes, like uh, Jeremy Mullen's webcomic recommendations, or the uh, URLs for the Quiet Panelologist at Work, or Collected Comics Library, so you can go check out more about their shows. So anyway, just a, a quick note, if you weren't aware of our show notes and timestamps, there you go, they're in the uh, iTunes descriptions, or you can get those at uh, aroundcomics.com. So uh, what will be in the show notes for this episode is our conversation with B. Claymore and Seth Peck. If you have been listening to Around Comics for any amount of time, you know that we're all big fans of, of Clay's work, and we're really excited to see Seth getting some stuff published as well. So you're going to hear all about that in a few moments. But uh, first, we're going to kick things off by getting you caught up with the week's events with Brian Salazar and Wired Wire Comic Book News. Uh, then after we talk with Clay and Seth, the quiet panelologists at work continue their A to Z, or Z, of British comics. Tom Caters is back as the answer man. Jeremy Mullins has webcomic recommendations. John Mayo returns to go inside of Diamond's Top 300 in his market report. Will Pfeiffer is back with new DVD releases and his cult DVD pick of the week. And then we'll wrap things up by getting you ready for the week ahead with the Collected Comic Library's Chris Marshall talking about new trade paperback and collected edition releases. And Tom Caters getting us ready for new single issue releases this week. All that and more is next on Around Comics. Alright, let's get you caught up with what happened last week in the comics industry. Here with his own special take on the news is Around Comics' Brian Salazar and Wire to Wire Comic Book News. Wire to Wire Comic Book News for the week of January 6, 2008.
DC Comics announced today the 10 entries in the first ZudaComics.com contest of the new year. Fans and fellow creators are invited to vote for one of the 10 comics to continue as a regular webcomic on the site. The selected comics are diverse in both their subject matter and tone, spanning a wide variety of genres from comedy to thrillers to fantasy and science fiction. Each is the unique vision of an aspiring comics creator who is sure to soon learn that inspiration, vision, and creativity have no place in comics. After shattering all known records in the field of philosophy comics with action philosophers, creators Fred Van Lent and Ryan Dunlavey have chosen as their next subject the history of the comic book industry itself from 1896 to the present, an irreverent but accurate journey that commences with Comic Book Comics number 1. Among the luminaries lovingly profiled and made fun of within comic book comics are Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Walt Disney, Roy Lichtenstein, William M. Gaines, R. Crumb, Windsor McKay, Will Eisner, Max Fleischer, R.F. Altcult, Dr. Frederick Funboy Wortham, Osama Tezuka, Bud Fisher, Harvey Kurtzman, Gilbert Shelton, Art Spiegelman, Steve Ditko, Alan Moore, and others. This marks the first time in comic book history that it has not been cool to make fun of Rob Liefeld. After nearly a decade, Dan Jurgens' Tangent Universe Heroes have returned to DC Comics in the wake of Infinite Crisis. Beginning this March, the acclaimed writer returns to Tangent with the 12-part Tangent Superman Reign. Believed destroyed for nearly a decade, Earth Tangent appeared in Infinite Crisis in 2006 and in Ion in 2007, as well as in Countdown Number 40, where it was explained that Earth Tangent exists as part of the new 52 Earths multiverse. Tangent Superman Reign, written by Jurgens, with art by Matt Clark, Fernando Passerin, and Jesse Delperdang, with covers by Carlos Pancheco and Jesus Marino, begins March 19, 2008. Many retailers have already begun making space in their quarter boxes. USA Today waded into the biggest controversy in comics, Marvel's One More Day Spider-Man storyline, in an article published on Thursday, January 10th. The biggest circulation paper in the U.S. described the comic world as in an uproar over the erasing of continuity in the process of converting Peter Parker back to a bachelor. The article quotes Marvel EIC Joe Quesada as saying that this is really the right thing to do for the long-term health of the character. The article also notes the release of the first chapter of Brand New Day last week and the conversion of Amazing Spider-Man to three times a month. Even the fictional newspaper editor, J. Jonah Jameson, was completely shocked by what constitutes news these days. This March, Joe Casey and rising star Chris Burnham dig deep into the hidden supervillain underbelly of Los Angeles in the 120-page graphic novel, Nixon's Pals. The Nixon in Nixon's Pals is Nixon Cooper, parole officer to Los Angeles's ever-growing supervillain scene, said writer Joe Casey. This is hard-boiled storytelling, basically putting a super-powered spin on what I love in crime fiction by writers like Elmore Leonard and Jim Thompson. Asked for his take on the book and what it was like to work with Joe Casey, rising star and title artist Chris Burnham said, Read it, bitches, or I'll kick your face in. Nixon's Pals will be in stores March 26, 2008. 
On January 10th, CBR News reported on publisher Boom Studios' bold move of offering each issue of the five-issue series Northwind for purchase in comic shops and for free online via MySpace. The marketing experiment angered some retailers, feeling that offering a product for free at the same time as its retail release would eat into potential sales. It appears their fears may have been for naught. CBR News has learned that Northwind was completely sold out at Diamond Comics Distributors, with a second printing being considered by Boom. It seems the increased awareness brought about by offering the comic online for free has driven greater interest in the title, leading to the sellout at the publisher level. Boom notes that copies may still be available at the retail level. On a related note, the multi-conglomerate Omnicorp Corporation recently purchased a large database of customer data from Boom Studios for marketing research. This information is to be used in conjunction with their newest product offering, Bottled Air. Zenoscope Entertainment, the company known for putting new and interesting twists on well-known stories such as with popular titles Grim Fairy Tales and Return to Wonderland, is doing it yet again with a new upcoming fantasy adventure series entitled 1001 Arabian Nights, The Adventures of Sinbad. The series will follow the legendary sailor Sinbad, who has been unjustly accused of murder and exiled from his home. After putting together a very eclectic but extremely capable crew, Sinbad sets on his quest to find the one artifact that can actually clear his name. Note to retailers, by eclectic but extremely capable, Xenoscope does mean scantily clad with large breasts. In a precedent-setting move, IDW Publishing, a division of IDT Internet Mobile Group, and an established leader in the comic book and graphic novel arena, is launching a children's division called Jonas Publishing and a new imprint, Worthwhile Books. The move will allow IDW Publishing to expand its library of successful print titles. To launch the imprint, IDW Publishing has inked a significant agreement with a renowned UK children's publisher and is striking deals with top Hollywood writers to create children's books. IDW representatives said, We felt that this demographic gave us a large base of buyers dumb enough to pay the extra dollar we tack onto every book. This June, Jeff Johns and Scott Collins will reunite and return to The Flash and his rogues gallery in a six-issue miniseries titled The Flash Rogue's Revenge. Starring Flash and the rogues, led by their bossy old leader Captain Cold, the story will also involve a reformed Pied Piper and a villainous Zoom with his own agenda. In a related story, around comics Tom Caters was recently admitted to Chicago Memorial Hospital with what doctors are calling dehydration and muscle fatigue brought on by spontaneous multiple orgasms. He will be released soon. Those are your Wire to Wire comic book headlines. Good night and good comics. As I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, B. Clay Moore has been one of the favorites of the Around Comics crew, uh, dating back to his work with Jeremy Hahn on Battleham. Uh, his other work includes Hawaiian Dick and The Weeding Man, also with Jeremy Hahn, and, and a multitude of other projects. And, and Clay always seems to deliver the goods, and now he's teaming up with fellow Kansas Cityan 
Seth Peck to bring us 76. And that's what the majority of this conversation is going to be about, their, their new series from Image Comics. And um, if it sounds like something that you're interested in uh, at the end of the interview, just be aware that the first issue ships this Wednesday, so you should uh, run into your local comic shop and pick that up. It sounds like something that will tickle your fancy. And uh, if it's not there... Uh, definitely ask your local comic shop owner or manager what's wrong with them for not ordering them. So anyway, uh, without further ado, here is our conversation with B. Claymore and Seth Pack. Well, Seth, Clay, uh, welcome aboard, guys. It's always uh, always good to talk with you. How you doing? Doing fine. Doing very well, thank you. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's it, it's great to talk with you, and uh, uh, this is kind of an Around Comics double feature with both of you guys on here, and you guys know all about double features. Uh, matter of fact, your new book that you're working on together is one. Whoever would like to start and, and tell us a little bit about 76. I guess I can do that to play. Um, 76 is, a, is an issue miniseries from Image Comics. For his first issue's out... Um, supposed to be out next week, but I think it's probably going to be another week or two after that. It's uh, It's been done for ages, but um, we had some printing miscommunications that delayed it a week or two. Um, but uh, we're we're more than halfway done with the entire series, so there's not going to be any problem with shipping uh, on a monthly basis. Uh, it is set in 1976, which is why it's called 76. You refer to it as a double feature. That means there's two features in the book. My feature is called Jackie Karma, um, which is set in New York City. Seth is called Cool, which I'll let him talk about, which is set on in Los Angeles, um, which is on the other side of the country from New York. Is this enough detail for you? Is this all informative? Um, Jackie Karma is a 60s-era street fighter um, with his partner, Mar- Marcus King. Uh, they were active in the late 60s in New York, kind of flower power kids, um, kicking ass and taking names and just sort of doing their thing. And um, as the Vietnam War amped up, they lost, um, they had a third partner, the brief origin here, they had a third partner named Bobby Howler, who was a judo expert. And Bobby went into the went into Vietnam and uh, they, they sort of drifted apart and they kind of went into other lines of work. And uh, so this is, this is set in 1976 when a threat from their past has reemerged. And um, Bobby Howler, who's now a street person, is confronted by this threat from the past and uh, kind of sends them back into action again for the first time. So it's uh, it's kind of a combination of all kinds of different exploitation and uh, 70s genre, uh, 70s specific genres, mainly inspired by music and movies of the era. Jackie's your, your kind of kung fu street warrior and Marcus is his brawling partner and the difference between 1968, 67, and 76 is that New York City in 76 was a pretty rough place to be, and so things have gotten a little harder-edged since they were last on the scene. So, so anyway, it involves them. It involves a uh, female private eye and uh, a soul-singing group who doubles as ass-kickers and uh, a mob weasel named Gino Valentino and uh, a pimp-slash-drug uh, dealer named Gil Gunn and so on and so forth. And, it's intended to be a little deeper than just like straight satire or just a, kind of a glossing over of, of the, the stuff from the era. So hopefully hopefully people find it engaging. Sure, it's um, like being dropped right into the middle of, a, of a, a, a really cool Chuck Norris movie. There are no cool Chuck Norris movies, so <laughs> um, it is absolutely not like a Chuck Norris movie. 
Unless you're talking about a movie that Chuck Norris appeared in that starred someone like Bruce Lee. Then we're then okay. We're there, well, that, that's why I preface it with a really cool Chuck Norris movie. So, thank you. Thank you. you yeah, know, if, yeah. If, so Jackie would kick Chuck Norris's ass in a heartbeat and not even think twice about it. Mr. Peck, why don't you give us the, the rundown on the second of the double features, Cool. Uh, Clay mentioned uh, my half of the book is called Cool. Uh, it's set in Los Angeles, 1976. It uh, involves a uh, drug deal gone wrong. Basically, a stripper's boyfriend uh, is trying to make a drug deal and is murdered, and she winds up with the drug money and goes on the run. And hired to find her are two Los Angeles area bounty hunters, uh, Pete and Leon, who are kind of our main characters of the book. And uh, the, the story is them trying to basically find the stripper. Uh, her name is Cherry Bomb. Um, as they're trying to run her down. Uh, yeah, back, back, back up. Did you get that, Chris? Yeah. Cherry uh, Bomb. Uh, of Very course. Clever, uh, yeah. Of course it is. It's U.M. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Pete and Leon are hired to find Cherry. Uh, she's on the run with a suitcase full of money. Uh, obviously, it's, it's drug money and the mobs involved. So you've got various other parties that are also interested in finding her. Uh, one of which is is the local drug lord. Uh, uh, he's actually a midget or a little person. I'm not sure what the correct term is there. In 1976, he would have been a midget. <laughs> yeah, he would have been a midget. Um, his name is Cesar Navarro, and he's kind of this ruthless, bloodthirsty drug dealer um, who obviously is interested in, in the money. Uh, there's also a, a crooked cop who uh, was involved in the drug deal and a uh, porn star turned hitman that's hired by Cesar named Jimmy Length. And uh, they are all basically five, six people, uh, the mob also, uh, trying to hunt Cherry and sort of mayhem ensues as they run around the valley for uh, about a 48-hour period. So um, it's, again, like Clay said, it's, it's really not satire. Um, it's, you know, there's, it's not uh, done to poke fun not, at the 70s. It's not, it's not kitsch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's set in the 70s, but, you know, it's a story that really, you know, it could have taken place at any time. Uh, 76 you know, using the year adds a little bit of texture to it, but it's, you know, it's not about disco or pet rocks or, you know, anything like that. Uh, you know, it has authentic stuff from the 70s, you know, the cars and the clothes and stuff, you know, where the artist, too, is uh, Ty Walker, uh, was, you know, very faithful to the look and feel of the era. But, uh, again, it's it's not poking fun at it. It's, you know, it, it draws a lot, like Clay said, from music and movies of the 70s. Uh, but, you know, it's it's not, you know, bell bottoms. Yeah, like I was saying, I was I was lucky enough to uh, for Clay to send me a preview, and you guys were really celebrating the '70s, is showing the coolness of that decade. And when I read it, I was like, "Wow, you can you can almost feel a soundtrack to to you know." It's both of both of the stories are very cinematic. They both feel like great '70s movies, and you almost feel like there's a soundtrack in there. And I and I went back to take a look at the preview again, and you guys actually put. A, a soundtrack in there. You want to talk about the the process that you guys went through to to pick the songs that you feel fit your stories? Just to backtrack a little bit, some some of the hell, most of the weight of the the authenticity or the, just the, the way the way I I approach this the way I kind of approach almost everything I do that's period based. I, I think it's important to kind of play with people's perceptions of the era and kind of filter them. I mean, you know, you're never going to do what's basically a documentary, but um, the idea is to kind of capture the look and feel without being, you know, pandering or cheesy about it. And, and the real key in both these stories to that is, is the artists involved. And Seth mentioned Ty Walker, who's a young guy from Canada that I met uh, two or three years ago at a convention, who showed me his stuff and just, uh, you know, he was a smart kid and just his potential just blew me away. I mean, 
Um, and then on the flip side, the, the artist on Jackie Karma is, is another young guy named Ed Tatum, who I've followed online a little bit and gotten to know. And um, he's just, he's kind of, he's, his, his sort of nearest touchstone or influence is Eric Canetti, who, who is um, basically his mentor. But I, I, I think he's, he's almost, uh, Ed would freak out if I said this, but he's, I, you know, he's, he's about on a, on a par with, with what Eric does. And he's just, these two guys are sort of so far beyond most young comic artists just in terms of their approach to everything. I mean, they, they're like artists, first of all. They understand, um, you know, things like anatomy and, and environment and, you know, storytelling and how to set a scene. And and their growth from where we started to now is just phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's the nice thing about the book is that, you know, I, I know a lot of fans think of, Third, you know, they, they think of the big two and then they think of other companies, you know. These guys blow away almost any young artist anywhere. And, um, I mean, that's a heavy statement to make, but I just, I think Seth would agree. We're just, you know, we, we shared this work with friends of ours who've been in the industry for a long time and people, you know, their jaws drop. And, the, you know, the, the sky's the limit for these guys. And they're both doing their own thing and they're kind of pushing each other, sort of a competitive nature. But, man, I mean, Ed's environments look like New York City in the 70s and the same goes for Ty with what he's doing in Los Angeles. So, I didn't want to. I didn't want to give those guys short shrift. Oh, absolutely um, not. What? What? How I would, from from my very much layman perspective, Ed's New York. It's kind of like you were saying. It's uh, 1976 New York. Not not the nicest of places. And his work yeah. has kind of a dirty, gritty feel to it, and it fits that yeah. that side of the country. And Ty's stuff blew me away. And it it feels. Yeah. Cal- I mean, he has a great California feel to his stuff. It it. I think both artists yeah. very different, but they match the stories, and that's what I liked about about reading it is that I felt like I was getting two very different stories. They take place in the same year, but they're you know yeah. they're they're different in in tone and feel. So I you know if you're yeah. looking for something to get your money's worth, it, you're getting two great stories here. Yeah, Ed, Ed's work on Jack, he, the, the, he's like he's one of the most fearless artists I've ever seen with a brush. I mean, he does stuff with a brush that older artists just. You know, they're like, I can't believe the guy has the balls to, you know, to throw this much ink down and make it work. But uh, you had asked about the soundtrack. That was like one of the first things when we were first conceiving the book way back when. We actually put together, I had Seth pick a few songs, I picked a few songs. We actually put together like a few mix, mix discs that we kind of used as inspiration. And uh, the whole, you know, over the year and a half or so that we've been plotting and putting the book together, we've we've kind of exchanged a lot of emails and stuff and talked about um, we, we talk music anyway, but it's, you know, every once in a while Seth will be like, yeah, this has to go on the soundtrack for 76, you know, even if it's a mythical soundtrack. So, so when I was putting the first issue together, I thought, well, let's, let's go ahead and, and uh, we'll do like a top 10 per issue, you know, and, uh, songs that kind of match the feel of the stories and, and, uh, stuff that might be playing in the, in the lounges or the cars or the background or, or even, uh, you know, the end credits of, of the stories that we're doing. So, um, so, so for this first issue, I had Seth send me, like his top ten for for cool number one, and then I did the same for Jackie, and and you can find that in the back of the book when it comes out. Seth, I had to go and get my old Gordon Lightfoot records out because you know I had <laughs> yeah, to. Yeah, and uh, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's in that first issue that you read there, but there's a nice uh, Gordon Lightfoot in joke there. Uh, Pete uses the alias Edmund Fitzgerald throughout the book with the mob, so <laughs> as uh, as the mob are trying to run Pete down and find him, they're they're asking around for a uh, Edmund Fitzgerald, so. 
There's a little 1977-1976 music uh, trivia bit there for people. And you can uh, find you can find that song on Gordon Lightfoot's summer, Summertime Dream album. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> highest charting album. Yeah. So, but like like Clay was saying, I think. <clears throat> excuse me. I think uh, you know you mentioned the cinematic feel of the book, and I think the, the music's a big part of that, and and a big part of uh, you know I. I think how both Clay and I write, you know, I mean, we very much picture sort of what we're doing as a movie and, uh, you know, Clay or Ty and, and Ed both really did bring a lot of what, what Clay had mentioned, that, that the texture and the tone of the book is a lot of what makes it come off as a legitimate story and not, you know, a real superficial kind of cheesy look at the 70s. And, and both those guys have such unique styles, but they both capture that so well in their work that I think it, you know, it, it's it's every bit as much a part of, of the book as as the dialogue and everything else is, is sort of the tone and, and the texture that those guys put into their work. It, I think it really helps bring the issues. Uh, yeah, of, of, of influences from the 70s, like in terms of media, I would say that, um, you know, seriously, movies, music, uh, you know, like way outstrip comic books in terms of the influence for this stuff, um, which, which is kind of, comic books sort of rarely directly influence what I do anyway, but... Um, I think that helps give it kind of a little different feel and stuff that's generally set in this era. So we'll see how people respond to it. And the, the analogy is used pretty often, and, and it's one that I like, is that, you know, making comics is sort of like making a movie with no budget limitation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is kind of what, you know, I approached it as this is kind of a movie I would make if I had, you know, the freedom to do any movie I wanted. And I'd say it's more of a, um, you know, well, I'm, I'm not putting myself in their class, but it's more of a, you know, Elmore Leonard or Quentin Tarantino type of thing than it is, um, any comic book, I would say that I, you know, from especially from the '70s. But you know, it, it's a straight crime story, and um, yeah, that cool, cool is cool has made me up my game in the writing of Jackie quite a bit. It's just such a great, <laughs> it's really a fantastic story. Are you, are you guys competing yeah. against each other pretty pretty good as you as you see scripts go back and forth? We get together on Sunday nights and, and um, wrestle in baby oil. Yeah, <laughs> um, a lot of physical combat because we yeah. have mental challenges. Yeah. But there there is that. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that <laughs> that uh, in a hot dog eating contest. Yeah, I'm fortunate well, enough that you know Clay's you know a very close friend, and, and I have a <laughs> yeah, a couple other friends that are that are you know Jason Aaron, um, name dropper. Yeah, Matt Fraction, local guys, Alan Moore. Uh, yeah, local guys that that really you know they consciously or subconsciously they push you to up their you know, up your game. You know, you look at at the work they do and it, you know, it, it drives you to, you know, want to do as well or better and outdo them. Um, that, that's true. What, what's that, that, I know that sounds like, you know, pander to the local crowd here, but the reality of the situation is uh, Fraction and Jason Aaron's emergence at Marvel and DC. Honestly, I mean, it's just, if those guys lived in Albuquerque, I would tell you that those are the two best up and coming, you know, young writers at Marvel or DC. And they're, they're doing stuff that, is bending the sort of standards of what mainstream genre comic books have been about. Um, and it's real inspiring. I mean, you know, we've known they were talented, but to see them do it on the stage they're doing it on, um, you know, the stuff those guys are doing just doesn't feel like what you normally see from, from the big two, so to speak. And uh, I think that bodes well um, for the future, but it also inspires kind of, kind of what we do. Um, you know, it gives you hope that you, you don't really have to color in the lines all the time to make an impact. And, and um, yeah, th- those guys are definitely an inspiration in that regard. 
Well, I tell you what, let's definitely go back to 76, but since we're talking about Kansas City and, and those guys, I know that Latour and Han and Tony and those guys will get pissed if we don't talk about Atomic Revolver for a second or two. Yeah, we, we don't actually have a, a one physical location we all work in, but it, it sort of started out with, you know, there's a group of us, uh, originally it was, you know, Clay and I have, have known each other for years and, you know, I don't think either one of us comes up with an idea that we don't bounce off the other one just to kind of get some feedback. And so, you know, we were sort of working in a, a two-man collective off and on for, for years now. And then as we've gotten to know other people that have, you know, come into the business and friends of ours like Jer- uh, Jason Aaron, Jeremy Hahn, Jason Latour, uh, Tony moved here. So, you know, I don't know where the exact idea originated, but... Yeah, it was sort of an idea of let's. I'm sure. I, I'm I'm pretty positive that at one point or another, Latour had the idea just because. At one time or another, Latour has had every idea. So, um, one of his late night Southern rambles, probably. Yeah. So we just, you know, we thought let's sort of make it an uh, unofficial official yeah. um, studio, and and you know it's it's a, you know it's it's sort of a brain trust, and it's a place for us to bounce our ideas around, and it's you know, there's a lot of things that are you know in the pot as far as you know up and coming and things we're working on and. Um, but we're also trying to, because obviously the physical, physical locality, we're all, with the exception of a tour who's a wandering gypsy, the, the other, the rest of us are all within, uh, well, Jason Aaron, Tony Moore, um, Seth and I are all within, you know, 20 miles of each other, and then Jeremy Hahn lives down in Joplin, which is just a couple hours away, so there's the physical relationship, but, but these are the guys that we hang out with anyway, if we go to conventions, we have similar sensibilities, um, obviously I've worked with Jeremy and I've worked with Jason, um, and Tony has, has lent a hand to some stuff I've done. Uh, Jason Aaron was a guy who shopped at our comic shop. For, you know, that's how we first knew Jason um, years ago, uh, before he had done, well, before he'd done anything, really. I mean, he did, uh, he, he won a Wolverine writing mm-hmm. contest, I don't know, Seth, what, like five, six years ago? Something yeah, like it was that. quite a while yeah. ago. And, and, yeah, I, and I can remember, you know, this, I can remember him handing that in at, yeah. you know, the, at the contest they had. So it's, it's been a long time, but like Clay said, these are guys that we talk to anyways, and, and to have that kind of a, a resource at hand, you know, to have a guy who's, you know, and to have Eisner-nominated, you know, artists and writers as sounding boards is, you know, it's invaluable, but and then on top of that, it's just the fact that, you know, and we're, slow, we're slowly trying to put together, um, you know, we've our presence on the web is at this point kind of limited to our MySpace page, mm-hmm. but we've, you know, we're in the process of trying to build sort of a home online where we can all um, you know, share our... Uh, share publicity and projects and everything we're doing, and we're we're all in the process of doing kind of a multi-collaborative effort that we will probably be able to talk about sooner than later. Artists and writers combining to do a single project. So it's you know, I mean, these are the guys that we you know in late nights chat about what we're doing and bounce ideas off of each other. So it just seems kind of natural that we'd uh, spend time together. And in fact, just before I forget, um, four of us will be in Orlando at the end of January at the FX show, which is a fairly recent Orlando con. Um, Mark Hammond, who's one of the organizers, has been chatting with me about coming down for that for a while, and uh, they invited the group of us down. So it's, it's actually going to be Seth, me, Jason, um, Latour, and Jeremy Hahn, and we'll, we'll be set up down there together, and we'll probably do a panel on Saturday and chat about upcoming projects we've got. And I think Seth and I... Uh, we'll probably be giving away copies of 76 number one at the panel if anyone wants to attend. So oh. I don't know if Somni's going. I know that Brian Hurt will be down there. He's a St. Louis guy who's a good oh. friend, too. So Go um, read go read The Damned, please. Yeah, uh, The Damned <laughs> is awesome. The Damned is probably yeah. my favorite book from 2006. It's yeah. just awesome. Um, 
Hey, he and Colin Bunn uh, did that book from Omni. Yeah, definitely read The Damned. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so anyway, that's, that's Atomic Revolver. Back to 76 a little bit. One thing I do want to want to talk with you about is that, you know, it, it's hard enough to write a 22-page comic book, but you guys are, are having that. It's it's 11 pages an issue for eight issues. So really, each of you are writing four issues, but you're spreading it out. How do you, do you take special considerations and saying, okay, I have to tell enough meat in this 11 pages to keep people coming back? What what kind of uh, hurdles did you guys have to get over to uh, to get that? Well, it's actually, it's just, just, just so people know, it's actually 12 pages. Okay. And Seth has trouble counting, so he's done 13 pages a couple times. So I like to, I like to, you know, give people a little something extra there every once in a while. The nice so. thing about doing the book of the image is that we, you know, we can we can add a page or two here or there to the store if we want. But uh, no, I don't know. It's just um, this is going to sound stupid, but it, it's kind of intuitive, I guess. I mean, you, you kind of know, you know. I mean, every story has a rise and fall and climax, and I mean, I try to end every chapter in, in any book I do. I try to end each issue. I always think of each issue in a story arc as, as a separate story, if that makes any sense. So, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the, the story continues, but, um, you know, I just treat it like I would a 22-page story and just kind of keep in mind that, uh, um, you know, the, uh, I guess the, the action of the story is going to it's gonna be a little, little more brief. I mean, I, it sounds obvious, I guess, but it's, for, for me, it's it's more intuitive than anything. I just kind of... I mean, I do, there are times when I'm on page nine and I go, oh, shit, I've only got three more pages to go. And, and, and you know, I, I have to kind of backtrack and make sure that the, the story works for the allotted space. But, um, you know, just keeping that in mind makes it pretty easy. Sure, how about I, you, I think Seth? the biggest challenge for me hasn't been, uh, it, it hasn't been trying to worry that there's enough meat there because I think, if anything, it's the opposite. I've got so many characters in the story and there's so much going on that trying to, you know, give everybody enough time, give, you know, fit everybody into one issue so that you kind of get to follow everybody's story a little bit at a time, yeah. um, you know, has made sure that there's plenty of actual material there. I would say that, uh, you know, and, and tied to that is probably the biggest challenge for me is just keeping track of all the players on the board. You know, you've got yeah. all these groups running around and, you know, you run into little things, you realize conveniences of, of modern technology like cell phones makes it easy to have a character call another character and, you know, meet up somewhere, whereas in the 70s, you know, you don't, you don't really have that. So trying to realistically put all these guys running around in Los Angeles at the same time and, and make them meet up and, and interact and stuff is, is probably the biggest challenge of doing it in, you know, 12 or sometimes, like Clay said, 13 pages. But, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm at the point where I'm pretty comfortable with, with pacing it and, and having written you know, the first issue is probably a little tougher to manage, and the second issue it gets a little easier. And I've, I've done several anthology stories, and I'm currently working on another where, you know, you're not working with a full 22-page thing. So you learn to sort of condense the story yeah. for the That's for the great. That, I, I reckon any and it, it, young writers do it anyway. I mean, there's anthologies have kind of taken off recently, but if you're a sort of a young, aspiring, or just, just a, you know, Shit, any any writer, uh, I I think doing anthology stories or short stories, contained stories, is, is always good mm-hmm. good practice. So there's a lesson for you. You know, learn to to work with what you've got. If you got five pages, you got to tell a story, or yeah. eight pages, however many pages it is. It's a good exercise, even if you're not doing it for an anthology. Frankly, I mean, just you know, just write write stories and you'll write an abbreviated, complete story in four pages and see if you can make it work. So now, seventy six hit shelves on January. What day? Well, it's supposed to be out the ninth, but mm-hmm. um, the convention is it 
the end of January. I think it'll probably be out a week or two before that. So. Okay. Mid, mid-January, maybe? Just check ImageComics.com and I'll <laughs> keep it updated. So probably shortly after this interview is on the air, as I guess as people are listening to it right now, mm-hmm. it may be in stores this week. Oh, yeah, so. that's true. So mm-hmm. check uh, Diamond Comics online or Images Online and Image Online and... Uh, it should have an updated ship date for you there. All right, we're looking eight issue, eight issue miniseries, and if things go well, can we uh, can we look at hopefully more stories? Uh, maybe a seventy seven. Maybe I, I I think each of us want to deal with the characters involved. I don't know that we'll do another combined book necessarily. Um, I mean, I've talked to Ed about maybe doing a you know something with Jackie Carm after this if it works out. I know Seth has talked to Ty about doing a story actually set maybe in the sixties with those characters. Yeah, one of the things we'd like to do is go back and maybe tell a story of, of how the two principal characters in 76 met back in Vietnam, uh, maybe in the in the earlier 70s. Uh, they're definitely, you know, I fell in love with the characters enough while writing them that I, yeah, I, I definitely want to come back to them in some format. Like Clay said, that may not be in another, you know, double feature book. We may do single-issue miniseries. It may be a one-shot. Um, but, yeah, these are characters I think we both definitely want to come back to and, and the artists as well, so... I would expect we will we will definitely be seeing them again probably in the not too distant future. All right, outstanding. Well, Seth, there's another project that uh, that you're working on out there that I've been picking up here the last couple months and really enjoying, and it, it's also a uh, a creative collaboration with another writer, and that's uh, Sorrow that you're doing with uh, with Rick Remender and uh, Francesco Francavilla on art. How's uh, how's everything with Sorrow going? Great. The, uh, the the la- the third issue. I'm sorry, not the last issue. The third issue. Uh, there's four. The third issue will be in stores by the time you're listening to this. The script for the fourth issue. It's being it's being drawn right now by Francesco. Uh, it's been a great experience. I uh, Rick is a, another friend of mine, uh, and we had spoken about working together. And at one point, it was uh, I was going to do an arc on a book he's doing or a book he was working on an ongoing. And uh, the more we talked, the more we decided we'd like to just kind of do something separate on its own. And Rick had, had sort of had this, uh, you know, the initial kernel of an idea for Sorrow um, and come to me with it and asked me to flesh it out. And we, you know, hashed out uh, some scripts from there. And he brought Francesco on, who's, who's brought, uh, you know, amazing uh, feel to the book and, and really captured what we were looking for. Uh, Sorrow, like, it's a, like I said, it's a four-issue miniseries. It's a horror story. Uh, set in uh, Nevada, where uh, basically it's kind of a ghost town story, a ghost story uh, involving a, a Indian ghost and, and a group of travelers that get stranded in this town. It's been a lot of fun. It's it's sort of something. I'm, I'm not a big horror movie fan. You're not a big oh okay yeah horror horror not horror horror. <laughs> uh, I'm not a big horror fan, but sort of started playing with the idea and through talking to Rick got excited about it and, and it was a a very enjoyable experience and sort of a, you know, a way to challenge myself as a writer to sort of do something that's maybe not my, my initial forte. Forte, yeah. So it's doing something a little different and, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Like I said, Francesco's done a dynamite job on the art and really, you know, seeing his work kind of kept me excited about the project and, and I've been very happy with the way it's turned out. Uh, you know, I, I went, we went for some kind of atypical, uh, horror stuff and, and really try to genuinely create something that we thought was genuinely scary versus, you know, the easy uh, gross out or the, the torture porn kind of angle that it seems like most horror movies are, are uh, following this, these days. But with 
chicks in their underwear on the covers. Yeah, we, we definitely wanted to put chicks in their un- in underwear on the covers because, uh, you know, we, we still do like chicks in underwear. But, uh, you know, I, I, it, it's been fun, and I, I'm glad you've enjoyed the book. Uh, you know, I, I hope people give it a chance. Uh, the, like I said, the third issue is in stores now. The fourth issue will be out, you know, the next month will be out in, in uh, February. And uh, the trade it was in the most recent Diamond, so the trade will be available, I think, in the spring. But yeah, I, I encourage people to pick it up. I, I had a lot of fun writing it, and uh, so did Rick, I know, and, and Francesco did a hell of a job on the art. So uh, it was it was good, fun Definitely. experience. And uh, look for uh, Francesco. He's going to be doing uh, Zorro with Matt Wagner, right? Yeah, yeah, he is. And, and Francesco's a, uh, just a, an incredible artist, and he's just a, an incredibly gracious guy and, and talented and uh, unbelievable workhorse. I mean, the guy, the, the volume of work the guy does is, is just astounding. I mean, well, and, and Zorro is, I mean, Francesco's a big, like, like pulp, pulp fiction, and, uh, you know, he's a big fan of the, the kind of swashbuckling stuff. So, I mean, he's, he's perfect for Zorro. He'll, he'll have a blast doing Zorro. Cool. And Francesco had actually done, just for fun, a Zorro story on his website yeah. at least a year ago. So it's, it's really sort of the project he was born to do. So I really think, uh, I really think people that, that pick it up are going to be impressed. It's it's uh, it looks fantastic from everything I've seen, and like I said, he's he's a great guy, and I know he's enthusiastic about the project. So nice. uh, it should be a very good book. It's interesting because looking at, at seventy six and sorrow, and, and even Clay and a lot of the other projects that that you work on, Battle Him and and Hawaiian Dick, which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. You guys are, are really attacking some some nice niche genres that it it's hard to get good horror comics out there. I mean there there are a few that are good. It, it's it's hard to get, you know, good period pieces out there and and you guys really spend a lot of time filling filling those niches and I and I think that there's definitely a need for that. Are you guys very conscious about seeing these these playgrounds to tell your stories in? I, I would say no. I would just say it's a matter of um for whatever reason, from my perspective, and I know from, from the first time Seth ever kind of mentioned ideas he had for, for comics, it, it's, it's just a case of telling... I, I, think, I think it's... I think the, big, the biggest problem... Well, not the biggest problem. There's a lot of problems in the industry, but serious problem you have with people who do create their own projects for their own projects is that they're just trying to retread shit that they've read in comics. You know what I mean? And, and I mean, honestly, all of the, the main, most popular comic book genres, which which pretty much is superheroes now, but, um, you know, it's all, it's all been done so many times in so many different ways. You're not, you are not going to put a new twist on a superhero book. I don't care what you think. I mean, you know, you can tweak it and make it a little different, make it a little exciting, but that's like beating your head against a wall to try to come up with uh, the 10,000th version of um, Superman or something. I, so, for me, the medium that I want to work in is comics. I mean, that's what I, what I want to be doing. I don't want to be you know, writing TV shows or movies. The stories I te- I want to tell are the stories I want to tell. They're not, I don't know how to explain it, but it's, 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 if I was working in fiction or film or TVs, these are the stories, <laughs> I said TVs, um, TV, these are the kind of stories I would, I would be telling just because there's no reason to limit yourself. It's, 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 it's ridiculous that comic books are so limited in terms of content. I mean, like Seth said earlier, you know, essentially you're working, you're making a movie without a budget. You can do anything you want to do in comics. So it's a little ridiculous that 95% of the comics out there are the same damn thing. Um, and I understand that most artists in comics 
their primary influences are other comic book artists. Most writers in comics, their primary influences are other comic book writers. That's why seeing guys like Fraction and Jason Aaron and um, guys like Tony and Jeremy and these guys we work with, and, and frankly, there, there is, a new, I think, a newer wave of creators coming in mm -hmm. whose influences are extended beyond just trying to draw like Jim Lee or just trying to draw like John Byrne or just trying to write like Chris Claremont or whatever. I think for Comics to Survive, we have to get away from that sort of incestuous retreading of, of, of hackneyed cliches. Yeah. <laughs> um, not to get on a soapbox. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, from day one, I knew, you know, I never sat down. I thought, God, I want to be this guy or that guy. I want to, you know, I want to write. I never thought I want to write the X-Men or this or that. Hawaiian Dick was the first creator-owned concept I brought, I pitched or, or thought up or, you know, did anything with. And it wasn't like, oh, i got to do something that's different from what everybody else is doing. It's like, well, what story do I want to tell? What interests me? What interests me? You know, at that time, I, I, I like the kind of tiki kitsch. I love the 50s era. I love the kind of dichotomy of the of an era that was bright and sunny and plastic and at the same time, you know, gave us film noir and some of the most paranoid kind of, um, you know, the communist witch hunt. I mean, there's a there's an inherent dichotomy in the era that I thought would be fun to play with. I love jazz. I love detective films. I love noir. So I just threw it into a pot, you know, and, and came up with what I thought was, was a fun combination of things. And, and I've, I've done that in just about everything I do. Now, what will happen is, something, is it'll come out of because comic book fans and reviewers uh, are so conditioned to spot influences and trends or whatever. I always get people coming back to me and telling me what I'm riffing on in comics with the stuff I'm doing. And it's rarely the case. Hawaiian Dick doesn't, I, there's not, a, I've never read a comic book that had anything to do with anything I've done in Hawaiian Dick until this latest storyline I'm doing where I've, I've brought a team of World War II era flyers into it, which are clearly influenced by the Blackhawks. Oh, and, sure. and, 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 you know, just the whole genre of, mili of airplane comics that used to thrive in the 40s and 50s, which has pretty much died out, um, which is one of the reasons I brought them into the story. I think that's fun stuff. But other than that, you can't find it. You can't point to anything that's going on in Hawaiian Dick and say, oh, you know, I, I, this is uh, like this book or that book. Well, I mean, e even even if you could, who cares? You look at you look at ninety percent of the stuff on the shelves, and it's like, who's going to say, "Oh, that that Spider Man issue"? That's that's kind of like a Spider Man issue that I read right. ten years right. ago. You know, well, I guess I guess the reason I'm not trying to be indignant about it, but but it's I don't want people to think that I'm trying to be some kind of an iconoclast where I just you know I've got to go against the mainstream or whatever. I mean, should I did Battle Him, which was about Golden Age superheroes, because I did Golden Age superheroes. I wasn't trying to mimic an existing comic. Book. I wasn't trying to sort of swim. Well, at the time, I mean, now gold, all of a sudden everybody's doing golden age stuff. But at the time, you know, I there were no market considerations or anything. Mm -hmm. um, but but I guess uh, I guess one reason that I I like doing stuff at Image and I like what Image does is that there are, seem to be a whole lot more people that are kind of feel free to sort of um, you know entertain their muse, so to speak in whatever direction they want to at a place like Image where there's no, you know, they don't come down on you if you're not following a market trend or if they can't figure out how to, you know, what demographic is going to work for this book. Because if, if, if everybody did that, all we'd ever have were, were superhero comics. Sure, where else are you going to um, be able to go in and pitch an idea about a 1950s PI in Hawaii? Right. You know? Right. And, you know, and I mean, I know there are other places. Jason Aaron is another great example. Scalped is a book that clearly has no genesis within comic books and it's a fantastic book um, and it's all it's all the better because it, it it's it seems fresh you know 
I mean, you did Hawaiian Dick on TV or in movies. It's, it's a detective book set in the 50s. It's not mm-hmm. some kind of freakish, um, unusual thing. But when it comes into comics, people are like, what is this? You know? <laughs> um, Scalp is kind of like that, too. You know, you hear it compared to things like The Sopranos or this or that. Sure. Um, but you never hear it compared to, you know, whatever comic book. Um, so I think, I think just, I just think more creators being free to sort of follow their muse wherever it leads without consideration for what the market wants. You know, maybe it's not the smartest idea commercially, but it, but the more we see of that, hopefully the more it kind of seeds, seeds the market. We had a big conversation a couple of weeks ago about, about the market and some market changes and, there are a few creators, and we would definitely put you out there as one of them. Jason Aaron being being another. There are there are a group of creators out there that are kind of leading the charge for comics that are going to have a little bit more mass appeal. And as the market kind of changes, and we see more transitions to the bookstores and stuff that is going to need a wider appeal. I mean, your guys' stuff is what is going to be there uh, when the, when the yeah, time is right. I just I'm afraid I'm afraid that we've killed. I, I don't know. I. I, I it's, it's a chore to get people to, to consider comics that aren't... I mean, I think there's a market for, um, you know, for literary comics, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things like Blankets and Acme Alpha Library, which, which are great books. Um, I think there's a certain level of acceptability with those things. I, I'm, I'm still waiting to see that much acceptability for genre entertainment in comic book form. Um, things like Hawaiian Dick and Scalped and... and uh, well, hell, Casanova, just to talk about Fraction, which I think is an insanely brilliant book. A book like Damned, you know. These are not books that... You, anyone can read these books. That if you've never read a superhero book in your life, you're not going to be confused by what you're reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always been gratifying to do Hawaiian Dick, which, you know, has never set the world on fire sales-wise. But, you know, we get a ton of feedback from people who gave Hawaiian Dick to friends or girlfriends or people who didn't read comics. Or, or people who are like uh, aficionados of... of um, Polynesian or, or South Seas or Tiki culture or, or noir or whatever detective stories, and you know they, they give it a shot and, they, and we get really positive feedback, sure. um, and that that's gratifying. We I remember getting a got a few letters right off the bat from from guys who sort of handed Hawaiian Dick to their girlfriends because they were trying to avert their girlfriends' eyes from all the <laughs> you know, all the horny fanboy covers on the superhero books and everything, and mm-hmm. and when they. You know, they read the book and find a fairly realistic woman who isn't falling out of a dress or, uh, you know, trying to bed the lead character, and, and you know, and there's a positive response from, from a female. Audience. Even though I, I, I will tell you, I, I actually just told my wife about Hawaiian Dick uh, right before yeah. I, I called you up, and, and the, the title did, did kind of throw her for a second. Oh, sure. But I think that, I think because, that she's yeah. going she's gonna to give it because a shot. Because she's not into Hawaiian stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, yeah, well, I mean, obviously the title is what it is. But the, the smartest thing I ever did with this book was was keep. I had to. I was the one who who was hesitant about using that title in really? the beginning, but uh, yeah, yeah, I was gonna, I was just going to call it Bird of Paradise initially, but um, oh no, no, um, you 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 kept you kept the yeah, right title. Yeah. It's uh, it was it was it was, was Jay Bone who came up with the title Hawaiian Dick, and he kept referring to it that way in the early planning stages because he he was initially involved in it and. Uh, yeah, I kept going. It's not Hawaiian Dick. It's Bird of Paradise. And uh, finally, I just gave in and said, "Yeah, it's uh, it's it's got to be Hawaiian Dick." So, oh, well, it's it's a it's a great book, and it's one of I know it's one of Sal's favorites, and uh, we've enjoyed. I'm just, I'm just glad it's any. I'm just glad it's one of anybody's favorites. I mean, it's you know we love doing the book, and I know that we've had trouble with shipping in the past, and we're not you know we're never going to be the trains are 
never going to run completely on time because of what we, the effort we put into the book. Mm-hmm. We are going to be more responsible this time around. The book's going to come out regularly. Um, Jason Armstrong is working on a, on a standalone story for an issue down the road. Um, he's, if, if you don't know Jason Armstrong, he's doing uh, the Lobster Johnson book for Mignola. And, you know, we're doing what we can to make sure the book gets out. But, you know, I, I love doing the book, and everybody involved with it loves it. And and uh, Scott Chandler's drawing it now with Stephen Griffin coloring it, and the, the, the response has just been phenomenal. You know, I actually um, want to talk about that for a second, and, and I, I really like Scott's art. But there are very few books out there where I'll, I'll set it down, and I'm like, who the hell colored this book? And yeah. Stephen Griffin's colors are awesome. Yeah. I mean, just awesome. Well, Stephen, talking earlier about guys who try to swim outside, Stephen consciously swims as far from the mainstream as he can. It, it terrifies him to think that he's doing anything anyone has ever done before. So when, when we started doing Hawaiian Dick, the colors obviously were. We pitched the book as, as a black and white book, but we sent color samples with it. And Image immediately said, well, we all think the color is the way to go. And Stephen kind of has that, you know, it's all digital, but he has this sort of painterly watercolor approach he takes. And, and you know, as, as I mention all the time, he, he received three separate Eisner nominations for the first two Hawaiian Dig miniseries for Best Colorist. And what's happened is, is with, with Scott handling the, uh, the pencils and inks for the new series, Stephen has sensed that some people are moving closer to kind of what he was doing on the mm-hmm. first two books, so he's kind of alter his style a little more for Scott's for Scott's art. It's it's almost more watercolor looking if anything and and uh I, I think this second issue that's coming out here in a week or so is is a step above the first issue, which I loved, but it's I think the second issue is just phenomenal looking. You're not gonna mm-hmm. see you're not gonna see any book that looks like Hawaiian Dick on no. the stands. Uh, and on the uh, the first uh he's got a um, a backup story which he wrote Andrew. Yeah, I'd watch your back. I'd, I'd watch your back, Clay. This guy's bringing all the guns, man. <laughs> the initial idea with Stephen just coloring the book and doing the covers was that he could kind of take it easy and not feel pressured to get so much stuff done. So then he decided he would write pencil, color, ink, and letter a backup story as well as coloring and lettering the, the lead story. So that's that's how they work in Australia. But nice. uh, but it's awesome. I mean, he's he's at the top of his game artistically, and, and he's written a really fun story starring Kahami, who's. Uh, sort of the female lead of the book and I I haven't read I mean I it's you know it's as much his book as mine so I let him go to town on the story I haven't I haven't even read his script for the rest of the story so I'm kind of reading it as, as he's finished it and uh, it's, it's great stuff it's it really it adds a ton to the book so um, and we and we can talk yeah, we can talk a lot more about about what Hawaiian Dick is about, but I would just suggest to people to, to go out and buy Hawaiian Dick Bird of Paradise. That's the, the first trade, and I'm uh, assuming that it's still in print right now, right? We just did a second printing that okay. it should be available right now. It's got a different cover than the first printing. It's got a white cover, um, but I just got a box of them, in fact, um, a couple of days ago. So there is a new printing of the first book out, and it's got a couple tweaks in the back, including an ad for the second trade. But it's it's virtually the same book, um, and, and I would recommend people track that down and at least give it a look because it's it's got about fifty pages of bonus material that Stephen just went insane with, yeah. um, and it's I, uh, that first trade I, is just is one of the books I'm the most proud of that I've that I've that I've uh, been associated with just because of 
the effort that went into it and just how much bang for your buck you get out of it. So You guys followed that up with the fantastic uh, The Last Resort, which is also available in trade, both from Image. So uh, yeah. uh, check those out. I, they're some of our favorites. And then, and then the new one is ongoing. We're looking at that monthly-ish right now. Yeah, m- monthly-ish. We're, the first story arc is going to be five issues, and then um, we're going to take a month off. We're not in the new previews because we... We're not in the next previews because we had to take a month off to kind of regroup and make sure we're we're, we're not falling behind schedule. And then the sixth issue is the one. It's a standalone story that Jason Armstrong is is writing or is not writing, but drawing and, and inking and uh, actually coloring too. And then we'll start a new story arc after that. Second issue of the first arc is out. Should be out, I guess, next week. Um, well, as you're listening to this, it's either out or will be out in the following week. And that's a story that involves, as I said, a World War II flying squadron who is performing in Hawaii in 1954, which is when the book is set. And they come across um, some strange circumstances. Basically, a Japanese Zero appears out of nowhere and shoots one of their planes down. And they they, they sort of they spend the, the, the series kind of figuring out what happened there. And then we set up some subplots and, and start to kind of try to expand things a little bit for... for uh, to, to set up an ongoing book, so not well, hey. to take all night to explain it, but that's basically it. Well, now we're we're talking about uh, talking about your your creator own stuff, but uh, it's mm-hmm. it's really nice to see that you're finally getting to uh, dip your toe in the waters over at DC, and you've got uh, yeah. a couple projects, and you know, it's Sal and I were talking about this today. You're a guy that that we both think of. I mean, you've paid a lot of dues in, in comics. You've been doing it for a while, and we were both really really excited to to see you doing some mainstream stuff how excited are you to to go over there and, and play with uh, a couple of the the big toys at dc yeah you know <laughs> i build you up like that and you give me it oh it's all right i'm a liar that's <laughs> no, been pretty awesome i'm i uh yeah, I got a call. Actually, it's been just over a year now. I got I got a call from Jan Jones, and she had, she's she's a big Hawaiian Dick fan. Um, and I, I used to run into her at conventions now and then. And she's she's the managing I guess the managing editor at DC mm-hmm. now. And uh, yeah, she asked if I'd be interested in doing something there. And I had I had written a short story for Marvel that'll be in some upcoming issue of Marvel Comics Presents, and I had dealt with them off and on, but uh, hadn't really focused on it. Nothing really came of that. So. Um, so yeah, I was I was glad to talk to her, and then I I, I got paired up with uh, an editor named Mike Seglane, who at the time was was wrapping up Fifty Two, um, and it just Mike happened to be a big Hawaiian Dick fan, and uh, usually when I talk to editors, I get this um, they they know they've heard of Hawaiian Dick, but they you know they, it's it's this I don't know you haven't meaning to read that book, or I've heard of that book, you know, or I heard it's good, but Mike legitimately was a fan of the book. He's a fan of. Pulp fiction and noir and stuff, and we just, we hit it off really well. Um, and the first thing they'd asked me to do was this JSA classified story, which features Wildcat, uh, which will be out in February. And um, it's the art is by a, a longtime friend named Ramon Perez, who's a Canadian artist who is just phenomenal. Um, I'm, I'm really I know yeah I know it's a JSA classified story. It's you know I think people take a look at those stories as just um, Side lights or you know side stories to the main stories, but the idea here was to kind of examine where Wildcat might go from here, sort of in his life. And um, and Ramon has, I think Ramon has done what maybe one of the definitive versions of Wildcat. Uh, Seth, Seth 
you're a big Wildcat fan. I mean, you've seen what Ramones do. Yeah, I, I was pretty jealous when Clay got the job to write Wildcat because it's, like Clay said, it's it's a lifelong favorite character of mine. And then when I saw the art, it, it made the wound that much deeper because it's, it's just, it's amazing stuff. And it is, it's, it's got a lot of energy to it and it's a different look. And yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be a great book. I, well, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it probably as much as, as uh, anybody you had posted some some preview art on your forum and there's the page with uh wildcat jumping onto the the boat on the dock as he's you know leaping uh, off yeah. of his yeah i, w- I want to buy yeah. that page that was yeah well get in line <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah the, the story the story flashes back to kind of wildcat's beginnings and now it's sort of a i mean the title of the story is forward through the past the idea being he's kind of he's like well okay i've been like a, a wheel uh, a small wheel with the JSA, and I train other other heroes. And um, you know, what? Why do I get in this costume all the time? You know, I mean, what what am I doing here? You know, and so he sort of examines where he came from and where he's going. And uh, Catwoman appears in the in the story. But so yeah, that's that's that story. That's three three parts. And then and then Mike was also editing Superman Confidential, and and uh, we started talking about that. And I, I did a, a three issue story arc there. Yeah, I think you've got. You've got a couple of uh, uh, young whippersnappers on art on that yeah. one, right? Well, that I was literally I was must have been Tony Moore's bachelor party, I guess. Um, it, we were it was this is speaking of this is this was the poker game at like two in the morning. It was me, Andy Parks. Um, I'm sure Seth was lying on the couch there. Um, Jason Aaron, Matt Fraction, uh, Jeremy Hahn, Tony Moore, and Greg Thompson uh, sitting around playing poker and. I knew Andy and Phil had just come off of, I knew that um, the ant book that Kirkman wrote was mm-hmm. had been canceled. And uh, just on a whim, I was like, you guys have any interest in maybe doing the Superman story? And, and Andy Meany was like, yeah, we'd probably do that. You know, uh, Phil does a kick-ass Superman. So it just kind of all fell fell in place perfectly. I talked to Mike about it, and he was, he was pretty enthused about it. Um, I thought it was cool because Phil and Andy had kind of stepped away from D.C. for a while and had done some stuff at Marvel, so this would kind of be the way to get them back in, into the DC fold. <laughs> and um, it's just awesome. I mean, I, you know, they ask me if I have ideas for covers, and I'm like, geez, come on, Phil, let's talk to Phil. You know, he's <laughs> he, he, he's going to come up with a better idea than I... And, he's, and he has. He's, I just saw the third cover, and he's... Uh, I, if nothing else, people are going to look at the covers and go, what the hell is going on in this book? Nice. But, um, nice. It's, uh, yeah, it kind of examines the early, early days of Jimmy Olsen and Superman, and... Uh, and one of Superman's um, longtime villains, Nemesis, MSI, Nemesis, Nemesis. And, yeah, it's just a lot of fun. I mean, it's it's Superman. I mean, who wouldn't want to play around with Superman? I mean, it's it's that much fun. So Yeah, I'm looking at a framed letter on Clay's wall of his office from D.C., so don't let him down by his excitement about getting to work on Superman or Wildcat. So. Okay, that framed letter that he's talking about is actually, yeah, I can't, I, I can't even tell what project that is because uh, I don't want to tell him. That's a different project entirely. But, no. Uh, um, that's going to be pretty awesome too. So, wow. well, I can't I've, wait. I've actually got, I've got a couple things I'm doing. Um, I'm doing something for Wildstorm that we'll be talking about here in the next month or so. Yeah, I can't really go into too much detail. Oh, and then also, it's been alluded to here and there, but um, Tony Harris and I have found a home for a creator-owned project we're doing together. Really? Um, wow. So that's, that that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I've, that's going to be that's that's that has been as much fun to develop with Tony as anything. I've worked on. Now, is um, he is he still working on uh, Ex Machina, or is this going to be after... Yes. Okay, okay, so... You this have this to... will probably be the project he does after Ex Machina. Okay. 
Well, great. As much as I, as much as I love Ex Machina and don't want to see that end, I know that is yeah. finite. So that's that's right. uh, that's great to know that uh, that he's moving on to something with you. That's fantastic. Well, yeah, it's going to be kind of a pulp thing, and it's, um, it's something he had approached me with just a little over a year ago, and we've spent um, we spent most of the year kind of putting it together, and uh, we've we found a suitable home for it, and um, yeah, that. So again, you know, in, in the coming months we'll be talking more and more about that. But it's one of the seminal sort of influences in my writing career in comics was James Robinson and Tony's Starman um, in terms of kind of realizing what you could do within the confines of mainstream comics. And so it's it's been pretty gratifying to work with with Tony on a on a brand new concept that uh, that we're both pretty excited about. Yeah. So. I can't wait to uh, cool. to pick up the uh, the Starman. They're re-releasing those as oh yeah, Omnibus. Yeah. He, he mentioned that to me before it was announced, and it was all I could do. He's like, "Man, you can't tell anybody this." Oh. I'm like, oh boy! <laughs> that that excited a lot of people because uh, oh, it was the craziest thing. You could get like the first two, but the third was out of print, and and yeah. uh, so I think a lot of people are finally going to be able to uh, to read all the Starman that they've been wanting to for a long time. I found a lot of my original issues, but um, <laughs> those are going to yeah. I'm definitely going to pick up the omnibus. Nice. So Seth, are you are you still over there? I'm st- I'm still here. Yeah, I've managed to stay awake. I- <laughs> I've heard most of Clay's spiel before, but uh, always kind of nice to hear it again live. So, well, I, just, I definitely wanted to check in with you before we wrap up. We've got uh, we've got uh, sorrow is uh, has two more issues, and and then you've yeah, got seventy so, six. Like the time people listen to this, the third mm-hmm. issue should be in the stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, fourth issue in February. Uh, seventy six starts in January, and and one of the things we did we were very careful about was where Ty is currently penciling the fifth issue of the book. So we've got a, a, a good, you know, we're halfway through the series as far as lead time goes. So Thanks. once it starts uh, in January, it'll be eight months on time every month and uh, something we were very conscious of going into it because we know we're kind of giving people something that's a little out of the ordinary and, and you, you definitely want to reward those people for giving us a shot by making sure we, we get them a book every month. So uh, once that rolls, that'll be eight months in a row. So looking Great. forward to it. You got anything else planned that you can talk about coming out uh, after 76? Clay and I have half a dozen things in various stages of uh, completion, and you know, I, I I am the only one of our collective that has the uh, dreaded full time forty hour a week desk job. So, uh, you know, my time is is limited. I also have four kids. So, um, since when is since when is delivering urinal cakes a desk job? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, <laughs> so so my time is 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 a little bit limited as far as what I have time to dedicate to work. So. I tend to focus on maybe just one or two projects at a time. Um, there's a couple things I'm anxious to get working on. Once 76 is wrapped, uh, a couple things with Clay. I uh, have various things I'm working on with, with a few other people. One of the things uh, I do have coming out, and I, I think it's safe to talk about now because I know they announced it in Spin, was a uh, I'm working on a story for a Tori Amos anthology that Image is going to be doing with... Uh, Gosh, just I, I, I'm not going to mention anybody else involved because there's literally way too many talented people for me to remember everybody, but... Uh, it's just a phenomenal lineup of talent, and I uh, finished my treatment for my story and, and got some feedback actually from Tori Amos on it. She really liked it, which was a huge thrill for me. So, uh, so I'm looking forward to doing that. And uh, other than that, you know, the plate's plate's pretty full with 76 right now, but some more things up in the in the near future. So. So 76 and Tori Amos. All right. Well, Clay, yeah, I think we covered we covered Hawaiian Dick and 76, the upcoming JSA. Now, JSA Classified starts with what issue? 
four, I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's got a it's got a Sean Chen cover as Wildcat, um, and the Superman Confidential I think is is eleven. All right. No, no, no. It's twelve. It was eleven, but we got bumped by Darwin Cook, so it's twelve. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, guys, it is it is always a pleasure. Clay, we've I think we had you on in one of our our convention episodes last year, but uh-huh. I mean we we met you a, a few years ago and always enjoy spending time with you. But I think this is kind of your your first uh, your first official seat on Around Comics, so it's uh, about two and a half years uh, too late. But uh, you know it's good to finally have you. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. Absolutely. And I'm glad you could bring a date. Let's get together to convention. Let's get together to convention, and you can have me in person again. Oh, nice! I'll I'll wear the tiki shirt for you again. Whatever. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, guys. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Bye bye. And we certainly want to thank B. Claymore and Seth Peck for spending so much time with us. And if 76 sounds like something that you'll be interested in, and, and I did read the, the first preview, and it really is a fantastic comic. Uh, it comes out this Wednesday, so uh, go and check that out at your local comic shop. And be on the lookout for uh, more work from Seth and Clay in the future. Let's move on here. It is time for the quiet panelologist at work to continue their A to Z, or Z, of British comics. Here are Matt and John of The Quiet Panelologist. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Quiet Panelologist at Work, A to Z of British Comics. This week we're doing the letter G. G for golf, granny and ghoulies. Ghoulies. But neither of them are G's. No. So what is your G? I'm going to save my G until you've done your G because my G is related to your G. Is it? Yeah. Well, my G, Matt, is Garth Ennis. Oh, I didn't know. What a surprise. No, it's a surprise. Now, he is famously from Northern Ireland. Oh. But more than that, he also works in comic books. His first comic was in 1989, and it was called Trouble Souls, and it was with the artist John McCrea. Oh. And it appeared in the comic book Crisis. Oh, we talked about that. I know. Everything links together. That's nice. Obviously, he's written lots of comics. His best-known British work is writing Judge Dredd for 2000 AD, where he took over from the creator John Wagner. His first American comic work was in 1991, which was Hellblazer. Ooh, but he's probably that. best known for writing Preacher. Now, he'd done lots of comics, Matt, and I'm not going to tell you did he all lots? of them. Did he do lots? He's did done he do lots. X-Men? Don't, he's not done X-Men. Uh, did he do Spider-Man? He has done Spider-Man. Did he do Superman? Uh, has he done... No, he hasn't done oh, Superman. Sorry, yes, he has in, in Hitman. Oh, he wrote yeah. Superman. Well, there you go. But he came back to British comics in 2001. Yes! I know. He returned to write Judge Dredd. Awesome. But apparently he wasn't very happy with it. Oh. Because, and these are his words exactly, Right. but I'm not going to do the accent. I'm too close to Dredd. I like him too much. I can't tamper with the formula. Can't take the piss the way I do with superheroes. Is he or is he close? It's like his what? brother. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, no, he is. Oh. So um, one of his newest projects is a relaunch of another British comic book. Which one's that? Oh, everyone knows which one it is. We mention it every week, I think. Um, it's you... Dan Dare. Ah, oh, the pilot of the Virgin future. Co- for Virgin Comics. Wow. I know. It's very good. 
Is it? I haven't read it. Yeah, Have you read it? It's quite good, yeah. Mm. I'll, I'll borrow a few. I guess second issue, good. All right, okay, okay. So how's your G related to my G? My G, John, is related to your G because I have chosen Glenn Fabry. Ah. Is it, is it Fabry, Fabry or Fabry? It's one of the two. Well, I will alternate between the two. <laughs> okay. Okay. Glenn Fabry is a British comic artist known for his detailed, realistic work in both ink and painted colour. Oh. Now, he's slightly related to Garth Ennis, not in like a brotherly way, like Judge Dredd, but right. in the fact that he does a lot of covers yes. for him. He has done the covers for the Vertigo series Preacher, which was written right. by Ennis. Yes. And he's also worked on 2000 AD. Right. Although when he was working on 2000 AD, he was doing Slain with writer Pat Mills. You know Pat Mills? I know Pat Mills. He used to do Funhouse. Yeah, that's him. <laughs> but he also did painted work in Crisis and Deadline. Right. Yeah. He also, in 1991, get this, it's very similar. He right. took over painting the covers on Hellblazer. You see, and who was that written by? It was written by Garth Ennis. Wow. It's a small world. It is a small world. And you never guess what, John? What? In 2002, mm-hmm. he worked on The Authority, and guess who wrote that? Who did it? Garth Ennis. You're joking. He and a, yeah. the next year, he did Thor Vikings. And guess who wrote that? Um, Louise Simonson. No, Garth Ennis. Bloody hell. I know. That is amazing. I think they're lovers. On Glenn's website, he's got a couple of paragraphs about how he met Garth Ennis. All right. It says here, Garth sort of pissed me off by saying he'd loved my stuff since he was 13, which made me feel about 300 years old. But we got on great, and every now and again I go over to Belfast and we have a laugh and we have lock-ins till the sun comes up. Ah, Oh, isn't it sweet? Isn't that sweet? So, G is a mixture of comic book man love from Garth Ennis and Glenn Fabry. Thank you very much for listening. Hooray! Hooray. We're quite penalties to work, and that was the A to Z of British comics. G! G whiz. And it's always fun to hear from our mates from across the pond. You know, you can find their podcast uh, directly on the web by going to panelologist.com. They're also members of the Comics Podcast Network, just like we are, and Collected Comics Library and a host of other podcasts. And you can find all of us together by going to comicspodcast.com. Welcome to Answer Man. This is the section of the show where you you test my patience with your questions, and I begrudgingly attempt to answer them. Uh, I'm feeling good this week. Uh, This question, actually, um, that I'm going to cover, I I got from a few people, and it actually really pissed me off when I first started. I got this, I got about four emails that pretty much asked me the, the same question, or, you know, to be honest... The four of you that sent them, these weren't questions. These are your own veiled beliefs that you put a question. I'm the one who's famous for saying a statement when I should be asking a question. So it's sort of a, uh, obviously your own feelings with a question mark at the end looking for me to enable you, and I won't. 
but I, I've calmed down a little bit. Uh, the Packers won yesterday, so I, I feel pretty good. I'm feeling pretty jazzed about that. So I'm in a good place. I've got a cup of coffee. I've had time to think, so I'm probably not going to be as, as filled with vitriol as, uh, <laughs> as I was probably during the week as I kept reading these emails. And so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read a specific one because I don't want I don't want to just draw attention to one person and uh, I'm gonna I'm not gonna say the names because uh, I don't uh, I don't want to you know make you feel bad because I'm gonna chastise you quite heavily. Uh, the general gists of all four of the emails I got were complaining about Teen Titans Year One and uh, if I were to create a synthesis of these four questions, this is how it would go. Dear Mr. Caters, and I love that in the synthesized question, the Mr. Dear Mr. Caters, what do you think of the travesty that is Teen Titans Year One? Robin using I Eming? That's unbelievable. Why didn't this book take place in the past when the, all the Teen Titans had formed? Love, and I, I sense love in these letters, blank. And when I first read this, this actually. It sort of angered me. And I'll tell you my whole thought process with why it angered me so much. I just... I've been driven crazy ever since we've done this podcast and we've had internet forums and I've seen and heard people's opinions about stuff. The thing that sort of drives me crazy is the, the grinchiness of comic book fans or of a certain segment of comic book fans. Uh, Grinchy in the sense that they seem to have been born with a heart three sizes too small. Which means they read a book, and at some point their head doesn't let their gut like the story. Even though there's nothing wrong with the story, there's no internal problems with it, it just doesn't match what in their head they think those books have to be. And I can see where people who uh, grew up with the Teen Titans, and uh, actually I'm going to email these people back and I want to see how old they are. There's a lot of, um, one person said, <laughs> which is funny, why didn't this book take place in the 70s? One person said, why didn't this book take, take place in the 80s? And I got to feel that those have to be the times when those people were kids <laughs> reading the Teen Titans and hence putting their, their time frame of when they read it onto what the new book should be. But you have to keep in mind that these characters have been around since the 60s. And now, and that, and here... Again, another week, another talk about continuity. These characters have been around since the 60s. So do they always have to be 60s? You know, do they always have to be, take their origins take place in the 70s? Do their origins always have to take place in the 80s? From now on, do this origin always have to take place in the 90s? A hundred years from now, when my great-grandkids want to read a Teen Titans origin story, and whoever the new hot robot artist at the time, sorry, artist to imply that you might be replaced by robots. But whenever the new hot half-man, half-robot artist comes out with his his or her, her or, I guess, genderless um, take on the Teen Titans, does it have to take place in 1980? Did my great-grandkids have to read a Teen Titans story that takes place in the 80s, or can we never move? Can we never move with the times? And I think it's kind of depressing. I mean, it's so limiting to the creative process. Uh... I know these are giant corporate entities, and these characters are <laughs> they're properties. Like I said last week when we were talking about Spider-Man. They're properties. Uh, they're not printed just because they think it's cool to make them creative stories, but it doesn't stop them from being creative stories. But I see a lot of people who want 
stories that they say, I want a Teen Titans story that's about the origin, but I need all of these things. I need it to take place in the 80s. I need all the technology to be in the 80s. I need this. I need that. This isn't how Robin would act. This isn't how Flash would act. This is, you know, and it drives me a little crazy. This is, and this is something I've used before. If you've seen me posting about uh, the brand new day stuff, you probably see me use this phrase, you know, they write these books. They're not just writing new entries in handbooks or who's who's. You know, they're not doing it to, to add another paragraph. You know, these are more than just spreadsheets about characters. They're supposed to be entertaining stories. They're supposed to gain an emotional reaction out of you. And sometimes that requires something beyond just a reiteration of what we already know. And uh, I just felt like Teen Titans Year One was a book I loved because it had it was fun. And it had funny parts, and it had touching parts in it. And yeah, you know, the Teen Titans formed in the 70s or 80s or whenever, quote-unquote, you were a kid. But the heart of that story is still completely honest to what those characters are. And you got to leave room for that. I mean, we're, we're, I assume the people that sent me these emails are adults. I mean, I'm pretty sure a 12-year-old doesn't want a Teen Titans story set in a decade that they weren't born in. So I just feel like people gotta, you know, I want to form an army to go around and slap people with a fun stick so they can start having fun with these books instead of wanting to squeeze all of that out of there. You know, just uh, relax, chill out. And just because this book had um, Robin using I Am, it doesn't mean that those uh, George Perez, Marv Wolfman Teen Titans books aren't valid. Of course they are. I have a bunch. I still have them. They're in a box. I'm looking at the box where they're in. And they haven't been burnt. Uh, I opened them up, and the pages aren't blank. They happened. I read them. We all remember them, everyone who's read them. So I just, you know, I'm trying to... I want people to relax. That's what I'm trying to say. Just relax. Chill out. Doesn't mean you have to love the stories. But, you know, let go of them a little bit. You know? They're not all yours. These books aren't written just for you. They're written for the whoever the audience is intended to be. They're written for a new group of kids. They're written for people who want a new take on it. So just ease up, you know? Stop clutching so tightly to the past. Open open up your heart. You know, the Grinch, his heart grew. And maybe your heart can grow. You know, start. you need to start reading with your heart and not so much with your head. And uh, not to say that all books should be dumb and, you know, emotional, but, man, you gotta, you gotta have some fun in there. Why do you keep doing it? Uh, now that I've ranted long enough about this, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop the, this whole continuity thing. I'm gonna, I've talked about it for I think like two weeks in a row now. I'm sick of it. I, I'm pretty sure all of you are probably sick of listening to me rant and rave at you and tell you that you know you're you're heartless. So from now next week is gonna be a nerdy question. You know it's gonna be I got a Legion question. I gotta, I gotta figure out how the hell I'm gonna answer it because, guess what? I don't know the answer either. So, uh, and we're gonna introduce a new part of this. I feel as if we have a voicemail. We need to use it. I need to hear the inflection in your voice when you ask a question. Is it accusatory? Is it angry? Is it loving? Is it tender? Is it gentle? Is it uh, erotic? Or is it stale? Is it robotic? Are you a robot asking a question? I don't know. I can't tell. It's all written down. You know, it could be it could be spam for all I know. It's very cleverly written. So, if you want to leave me a voicemail, which I will play on the show, 
call us at 1-888-977-5903. Just say it through the Answer Man or Mr. Caters or Mr. Answer Man or Tom Answer Man Caters. Any of those will work. It'll find its way to me. And uh, I'll answer it and I'll play it. And people love hearing their voice on the internet. That's what I've learned. So join in. Join in on the fun. I do. And uh, I'll talk to you guys next week. Love, Tom. This portion of Around Comics is brought to you by Ape Entertainment. And now available for order from Ape Entertainment is White Picket Fences. The critically acclaimed series returns on a new prestige one-shot featuring two titanic tales. In the history lesson, an aging mad scientist makes one last dastardly grasp for power. Then in Beatlemania, giant bugs invade Greenview, destroying everything in their path. Find out why Diamond Scoop Magazine named White Picket Fences one of the top ten books of 2007. Order your copy of the White Picket Fences one-shot today from the January issue of Previews. And to purchase the original three-issue miniseries, head to your local retailer or visit www.apecomics.com. Keeping track of market trends and sales numbers can drive you a little crazy in comic books, but there, there's one guy that has gotten very good at doing it, and that's John Mayo. And twice a month, John checks in with us with uh, a real quick glimpse into the numbers at, at Diamond, whether it be the top 300 selling comic books or the top 100 selling trades. Uh, this week, he goes over the top 300 in, in single-issue comics. Now, you can always check out John's more extended podcast, the, the Comic Book Page podcast, or his great article at Comic Book Resources. Well, let's get into uh, the the top 300 here. Here is Mr. John Mayo. Here is a breakdown of the sales of the top 300 comics reported by Diamond for November 2007, based on what Diamond shipped to retailers during the month. The estimated total volume of the list was 6,951,000 comics, which is down by 199,000 from last month, and down by 1,009,000 copies from November 2006. At full cover price, this works out to an estimated value of $21,754,000, which is a decrease of $1,163,000 from the previous month, and a decrease of $2,842,000 from November 2006. The publisher with the largest percentage of the top 300 comics for November was Marvel Comics, which had 44.57% of the total units sold, with 83 items on the list. The top-selling item for Marvel Comics was World War Hulk number 5 in slot 1, with an estimated 146,000 copies. This was down 2,800 copies from the estimated total reported sales of the previous issue. DC Comics had the second-highest number of total units, with 2,708,000 copies, accounting for 38.96% of the total top comics sold in November. They did this with 100 different items on the list. The top-selling item for DC Comics was All-Star Batman and Robin the Boy Wonder number 8 in 
rank 9 with an estimated 97,000 copies, down 3,500 copies from the estimated total sales of the previous issue. Even with all the negative buzz that the title seems to get online, it was still the top-selling title for DC in November. Dark Horse came in with the third highest piece of the pie with 5.69% of the total units sold and had 26 different items on the list. The top-selling item for Dark Horse was Buffy the Vampire Slayer number 8 in rank 10 with an estimated 91,600 copies, a decrease of 2,500 units. It's also worth noting that the first four issues of Buffy the Vampire Slayer had reorder activity of between 4,700 and 5,500 units each. For comparison, the reorder activity during November for the trade paperback containing the first five issues of the series was only 1,650 units. This is just one of the ways that the Buffy the Vampire Slayer series is showing an unprecedented sales strength. This month, the title with the biggest increase in sales over the previous issue was Sensational Spider-Man number 41 in slot 7, which gained an estimated 48,100 units, resulting in an estimated 100,300 copies sold. This was the third part of the One More Day storyline, which ironically is a storyline that could have only been told with a married Spider-Man. For Around Comics, I'm John Mayo. John Mayo writes the Mayo Report 2007-08 Top Comics each month, which examines the sales estimates and market trends for comic books, graphic novels, and collected editions. He's also the host of the Comic Book Page podcast. You can find his articles at comicbookresources.com and his podcast and sales estimates charts at comicbookpage.com. Comics aren't just in comic shops and bookstores anymore. You can find thousands of web comics online. And Jeremy Mullins is here to save you hours of searching the internet by telling us where to find the best and brightest in the ever-changing world of web comics. White Ninja Comics are not for everybody. White Ninja Comics are not for the weak of mind. White Ninja Comics would not be for those two stormtroopers in Star Wars that Obi-Wan waves his hand in front of and they let him pass. You don't need to see his identification. We don't need to see his identification. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. He can go about his business. You can go about your business. Move along. Move along. Move along. White Ninja Comics are not for my mother. Not that she is weak of mine, but she would maybe read one or two and then look at me with a puzzled look, a tilt to the head, and glossy faraway eyes as she wonders if maybe she did something while I was small to maybe something, some kind of accident, uh, some kind of trauma, that would turn me into a man who would enjoy and take such delight from absurdity and foolishness. I think White Ninja Comics are for you. I'm sure White Ninja Comics are for you. Pull up your browser. Start typing. Start typing now. Start typing WhiteNinjaComics.com. The comic stars a character, the White Ninja. Surprise! The White Ninja looks like he was, uh, like he looks like an amoeba. Like maybe he was drawn by a kindergartner with muscular dystrophy or some such debilitating, crippling disease. The comic is created by Scott Bevan and Kent Earl. One of them might have a debilitating disease. I'm unsure. 
The comic is part of the National Lampoon Humor Network, and Bevan had this to say in an online interview about the white ninja style of humor. Bevan says, quote unquote, it is like so dumb, it makes you want to stop doing anything smart for a while. Uh, he goes on to say that it makes a perfect break for worker school, where smart stuff is bound to happen. And I could not agree more. If you are at work or you are at school and you want the smart stuff to indeed stop happening, point your browser to whiteninjacomics.com. Pull it up. Start typing. Start typing now. Start typing whiteninjacomics.com. If you enjoyed the XKCD recommendation that I made several months ago, then White Ninja Comics will be right up your alley. Check it out today. Make up your own mind. After you make up your own mind, forward it on to your mother and be prepared for many questions. For Around Comics, I'm Jeremy W. Mullins. Jeremy Mullins is a professor of sequential art at the Savannah College of Art and Design. You can find more about the school and their programs of study by going to www.scad.edu. And thanks again to Jeremy for his webcomic recommendation. I always look forward to those each week. And like I mentioned at the top of the show, you can find the URL for those recommendations in the show notes. And we also have a sticky thread at aroundcomics.com at the forum with uh, a, a running record of those recommendations. So if you want to go back and check out some of the older recommendations, you can certainly do that there. When he's not writing the continuing adventures of Catwoman, Will Pfeiffer is a DVD and movie reviewer for the Rockford Register Star. Here's Will to tell us about what's happening in DVDs. The big studio release this week is Good Luck Chuck, but since this Dane Cook comedy was so bad that even the presence of the ever-luscious Jessica Alba couldn't save it, it's probably best to pretend it doesn't exist and just move on. Blue Harvest, the Family Guy Star Wars spoof slash tribute, debuts on DVD this week, so if you didn't record it for free off TV, here's your chance to pay for it. I'm not a big Family Guy fan, but even I'll admit the Red Fox standing by joke was pretty funny. Spike Lee's debut film, She's Gotta Have It, arrives on disc this week too. Like most of Lee's movies, it alternates between moments of cinematic innovation and moments of just plain stupidity. As an example of the latter, check out the overblown color dance sequence in the middle of this down-to-earth black-and-white movie. What the hell is that doing there, Spike? My pick for the best release of the week is Extras, the complete series, which collects both seasons of Ricky Gervais's Britcom, plus the Christmas special that wrapped it up. Gervais, the comic genius behind the original Office, takes a sharpened steel spike to the concept of celebrity in this series, which follows Andy Milligan, played by Gervais, from no-name extra to sitcom stardom. Like The Office, it combines comedy and drama in equal doses and is well worth a look. Keep an eye out for guest appearances by Ben Stiller, Sam Jackson, Clive Owen, Kate Winslet, and David Bowie. This week's cult DVD pick is Fido, a 2006 comedy that takes the horrifying concept of a zombie epidemic and transfers it to the all-American setting of a 1950s sitcom. Here, the zombies have been pacified and act as servants to the suburban moms and dads. Kids have rifle practice during recess, and old people are feared because they could die at any moment and turn into a flesh-eating zombie. Carrie Ann Moss, who played Trinity in the Matrix movies, is virtually unrecognizable here as a June Cleaver-like mom, and Tim Blake Nelson, from Oh Brother Where Art Thou, scores several laughs as a self-styled playboy with a zombie girlfriend. If you like zombie movies, and hell, who doesn't, pick up a copy of Fido. 
That's the DVD report for this week, and I'm Will Piper. You can find Will's written reviews at the Rockford Register Star by visiting go.rrstar.com and going to the entertainment section. You can also visit Will's blog at willpiper.com. And remember to read Catwoman every month. Now let's get you ready for the week ahead with new trade paperback releases. Here is Collected Comics Library's Chris Marshall. Hey everybody, it's Chris Marshall. It's time for this Monday's Trade 5 Report. Let's start off with new releases coming out from DC Comics this week. We have Harley Quinn, Prelude, and Knock Knock Jokes, the hardcover. This collects Harley Quinn 1 through 7 for only 25 bucks. Hope she's worth it. Next we have Doom Patrol Volume 6, Planet Love, The Trade. This is for mature readers, and this wraps up Grant Morrison's run on Doom Patrol. This collects issues 58 through 63 and the Doom Force Special Number 1 for only 20 bucks. Moving over to Marvel, we got a slew of Marvel books out this week. The Hulk, the end premiere hardcover, both the regular and the variant edition. This collects Hulk, the end, and Incredible Hulk, Future Imperfect. 1 through 2 from Peter David and George Perez for only 20 bucks. What do you guys think of these end books that have been coming out lately? It seems like everybody has got an end book these days. You know, they even got Stan Lee to come out and pen the last Fantastic Four story, which by all accounts was pretty much terrible. And if you ask me, they should have left it the way they did in Punisher Kills the Marvel Universe. That was the first one, and that was the last one as far as I'm concerned. That story was spot on. First is always the best, it seems. Moving on, we have X-Factor Madrox Multiple Choice Premier Hardcover clicking Madrox 1 through 5 for 20 bucks. House of M gets a hardcover, which is kind of laughable, right? This is the series that just won't die. And in case you don't have those nine House of M trades, you can start collecting the hardcovers now. This will collect House of M 1 through 8. The Pulse Special Edition, which I think was issue 10 of The Pulse, if I'm not mistaken. And The Secrets of the House of M Handbook, plus all new extras handpicked by Brian Michael Bendis himself. This is only for 30 bucks. We also have a neat little book to add to your Handbook of the Marvel Universe Essentials. This is the Essential Marvel Saga Volume 1, and I believe there only will be one. This collects this 12-issue miniseries of the official history of the Marvel Universe by noted Marvel historian Peter Sanderson, who I talked about on my show at the Collective Comics Library just last week, and a book he did involving Captain America, Wolverine, Spider-Man, and the Hulk. Check it out if you guys are interested. We also have another essential, the Essential Captain America Volume 1 trade. This is a new printing of Captain America Volume 1. This will collect Tales of Suspense 59 through 99 and Captain America 100 through 102. What is different about this new printing is that it gets rid of Captain America Comics number 5 from the Golden Age. That story was titled The Devil That Was Devil's Island from August of 1941 by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. And if I'm not mistaken, is the only Golden Age story to ever be essentialized. In either case, the essentials go for $17. Warren Ellis has a book out this week, Thunderbolts by Warren Ellis, Volume 1, Faith in Monsters Trade, collecting Thunderbolts 110 
through 115, and Desperate Measures and T-Bolt's Stories from Civil War, The Initiative, and Choosing Sides for $20. Heroes for Hire, Volume 3, World War Hulk Trade, Collecting Heroes for Hire, 11 through 15 for $14 of the current series. Fantastic Four and Power Pack, Favorite Son Digest, Collecting Fantastic Four and Power Pack, 1 through 4 for only $8. And Avengers Classic keeps rolling along with Issue 8, Reprinting the classic Avengers number 8 by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, fully restored and recolored, plus an all-new Avengers adventure for only $3. Dark Horse has a pretty cool book out this week, the Dark Horse Heroes Omnibus. Dark Horse Heroes Omnibus collects comics' greatest world and will to power, the two-hit maxi-series created by Dark Horse Comics that turned the concept of the superhero universe on its head, bringing together an all-new team of creators. It's 424 pages and retails for 25 bucks. Over at Image, we've got Bomb Queen 3 Bombshell, the trade for 15 Over at IDW, we have the anthology title Lifelike Hardcover, which I'm sure will garner some critical acclaim. Over at Tomorrow's, we've got back issue number 26, if you're interested, and the Best of Draw magazine, the trade, volume 1. This is a new printing of this for 25 bucks. And Modern Masters, Volume 15, Mark Schultz. This is the soft cover for $15. And finally, if you guys are like me and like to collect the EC Archive series that's been coming out, uh, did you forget about it like me? Because there hasn't been an EC Archive come out since last October. And it seems like the schedule is kind of slipping with these guys. But anyway, they get their act together this week. And they finally bring out EC Archives Crime Suspense Stories Volume 1 hardcover for 50 bucks, collecting Crime Suspense Stories 1 through 6 from 1950 and 1951. So that'll do it for this Monday's Trade 5 for Around Comics. I'm Chris Marshall, Collected Comics Library. Chris Marshall is the host of the Collected Comics Library podcast. You can find the podcast, release schedules, and checklist of everything collected at CollectedComicsLibrary.com. Welcome to the new releases for Wednesday, January 16th. Let's go to the giant magical board that contains all of the things I want to talk about. First one, written in chalk, is Fear Agent, number 18 in the series, Hatch Job Part 2, Rick Remender, Jerome Opinion. Last issue had Giant Flying Goldfish, loved it. This issue looks like it is going to have some sort of subterranean coliseum fighting. Again, most likely we'll love it. We have Umbrella Academy Apocalypse, suite number 5 of 6 from Gerard Way and Gabriel Ba. I've been pleasantly surprised by this series, and uh, I'd like to damn Gerard Way for uh, proving that my preconceptions can be wrong. Uh, my world's a little bit shattered. We got Booster Gold, number 6 from DC Comics. The Jeff Johns, Jeff Katz, Dan Jurgens, Norm Ratman series. If you love Blue Beetle, you might want to pick this issue up because there's going to be, I don't know, four Blue Beetles in it. I won't go any more, any more into it because I don't want to ruin it for people. But, listen, it's coming. Get it. We have uh, something that I don't usually pick up, but I think I'm going to get this week. Uh, Catwoman, number 75. Uh, it's having a bit of a Salvation Run tie-in, and I've been loving Salvation Run. The writer is uh, Will Pfeiffer, who uh, does the DVD uh, commentaries and uh, recommendations on this very show, with art by David Lopez and Alvaro Lopez. Uh, it looks... Pretty sweet, and uh, I love villains, and I love when uh, villains try and uh, screw each other over. 
Uh, we have the always beloved checkmate number 22, continuing the Mademoiselle Marie storyline, which has been, you know, nice. Every, every character is a legacy character, or maybe they all should be. And the Chris Somni art is amazing. Uh, if you have recently been turned on to the New Gods, like I've seen quite a few people on the internet having read some New Gods stuff for the first time, the Countdown Special, The New Gods, one of those reprint issues is coming out. It is $4.99, uh, but if you're interested in sampling a little bit of it, there's going to be some uh, interesting stuff in there. We have Justice League of America, number 17. Uh, I've been pretty disappointed in this series last couple issues. Uh, the next two issues are going to be weird. They're sort of taking the split angle with uh, Alan Burnett re- writing the lead story and the regular writer Dwayne McDuffie writing a backup feature about Vixen. And uh, I just feel like this book should be bigger and should be doing bigger stories. And that's my preconception, but it, it just feels a little all over the place. You know, Justice League of America, it, it, it shouldn't be an anthology of small stories. You know, it should be... You know, a wham, bam, action story with, you know, the biggest, best heroes you got. So I'm hoping it turns around a little bit. Uh, they're gonna be, uh, there's going to be a Van Skyver issue coming up, so I'll probably jump back on board for that. Uh, from Wildstorm, we have World of Warcraft, number three, coming out. And a reprint of number one. Uh, I've seen things that say that the, this is selling pretty well. So in uh, celebrations, I'm going to drop a Leroy Jenkins. And let's move on. Two. What's next on my list? As I look down, we have from Image Comics. Uh, now I'm stalling. See, as you see, you know, I, I I try and get the momentum going, and now all of a sudden I've been sidetracked. And uh, we got 76 by B. Clay Moore, Seth Seth Peck, art by Ed Tenham, Ty Walker. Uh, it's uh, it looks like it's giving me a pretty cool sort of uh, retro 60s era New York City, you know, karate everything going on Los Angeles bounty hunters as you can tell I'm reading the description and just saying the words that look interesting to me but I love B. Claymore stuff so I will probably pick this up uh, surprise entry fell number 9 uh, the slimline book by Warren Ellis and Ben Templesmith making a reappearance after several months of not coming out I love this book I love how the slimline format uh, I think really pushes Ellis to tell a really tight interesting detective story with lots of themes that run throughout the issues but they're really sort of cool one and done ones too we have a hawaiian dick screaming black thunder which uh is my early my early pick for name of the year also written by b claymore with art by scott chandler and stephen griffin i picked up the first one uh based on a recommendation from sal who you might know who uh, does this show as well and uh, i was surprised enough by how good it was to continue Picking it up. Uh, let's move on to Marvel with Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2, Number 5, 47. Brand new day continues. Uh, I heard a lot of good things about this and not too much uh, crying. So I think uh, maybe they have figured it out. You know, we had to bite the bullet and we had to do something to get some good stories. So I'm still not going to get it, but I just wanted to tell people about it. Uh, we have something I am going to get, which is Immortal Iron Fist Number 12, written by Matt Fresh and Ed Brubaker. Art, art by David Aha, I believe is how it's called. To be continued, the seven capitals of city, seven capital cities of heaven storyline, with all the sweet kung fu and intrigue. I never cared about Immortal Iron Fist until Matt Fraction and Ed Brubaker proved how completely and utterly wrong I was to avoid it. We have 
incredible Hercules, number 113. Uh, bravo just for the fact that Hercules has a book. I just want it to do well. I think it's great when they switch things up and give someone like this a book. Of course, sales will probably ultimately prove them wrong for doing so, but keep it up while you can. We have New Exiles, number one. Uh, Chris Claremont, Tom Grummet launching the uh, the Exile series, which I've often heard some uh, pretty good things about. And uh, I guess New Beginning, maybe I should jump on. Uh, I've picked up some back issues of Exiles to see how much I enjoy it, but as you know what, I love multiverse stuff. And guess what? Marvel has one. It's just an Exiles. So I'm going to follow that and, you know, maybe I'll jump on. Who knows? I'm crazy like that. Sometimes I just do crazy shit. We have from Oni Press... Resurrection number two, the uh, Mark Guggenheim creator-owned series, uh, art by David Dumere. Uh, I enjoyed the first one. I thought it was a pretty, pretty interesting premise. With you know, it's Earth's been invaded by aliens for years. The aliens leave for some reason. Now, what happens? It's the day after. It's the sort of the alien invasion story, but the second part, the part that you don't usually see. Uh, I thought that it was a little shaky at times in the first one, but I was intrigued enough to keep going, and I, I think Guggenheim's a good writer, so I am very interested in seeing where he's going to take this story. And, you know, and I'm just I'm looking down the list, and uh, I think that yeah, that might be that might be for me for uh, for this week. I don't really have too much. You know, one of the things I want to mention is if... Uh, People think I'm missing anything. Oh, wait, I did miss something. Something called Booby Biter Mini Comic from License Farm Studios. Uh, I don't think my store's getting it, but it's called Booby Biter. <laughs> Writer's Ken Applebaum. So, <laughs> the picture, the front cover is pretty funny. So, look it up, and then the name caught me. If you think I'm neglecting a book that perhaps perhaps deserves some attention, because, I, you know, I'm looking at this list and some stuff. I know I try to include stuff I don't read necessarily, but I think looks interesting. If you think I'm missing anything, email me a comment around comics, and I'll consider it. I, I don't necessarily listen to people, but I'm always willing to pretend to. So that's the new releases, and I'll see you next week with more new releases. And that'll take care of another Monday edition of Around Comics, the Comic Culture Podcast. Certainly want to thank all the contributors today for their segments and B. Clay Moore and Seth Peck for visiting with us. Remember to come back on Thursday for Around Comics, the Comic Culture Roundtable. It's an informal and entertaining look at uh, different things around the world of comics and pop culture. Remember, you can visit us online by going to www.aroundcomics.com. Become a member of our forum and uh, put your feedback on this and other episodes. You can email us at info at aroundcomics.com. You can email me personally at chris at aroundcomics.com. You can visit uh, other places on the Internet like Comic Space and MySpace. We're there. And, uh, you know, my personal favorite, if you want to uh, be as cool as Andy Parks, you can leave us an idea tunes music review so come back on thursday for lots of great roundtable comic book talk and then again next monday for another installment of around comics the comic culture podcast in the meantime in between time we'll be everywhere in and around comics
Views expressed in the interviews or by guests of the show are solely those of the individuals expressing them and may not reflect the opinions of Around Comics. Any reproduction, rebroadcast, or retransmission without the express written consent of Around Comics is strictly prohibited. All content presented in this program is the sole property of Around Comics, and this has been an Around Comics production, copyright 2008. Love and baby, one can't